0: Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Today's show is Babbo in the Sunshine. Herman Melville stages the Trial Rebellion. Our music today comes from Charles Mingus, an ever-unfolding artist of Oceanic Genius. This is the title track from the 1961 release Tonight at Noon which might be interpreted as darkness visible. Last week's show with Zach Sell was about how U.S. slavery troubled the imperial imaginary, asking if U.S. plantation overseers could translate the brutal practices of slavery's violent efficiencies onto Britain's colonial empire in India and the West Indies in the mid-19th century. Next week's show with Mark Driscoll, again, centers on Imperial Britain and the ecological disaster of capitalism, inscribed onto the land via narco-trafficking and human trafficking in China and Japan in the 19th century, as all of nature is reduced to material resource through warfare, lawfare, and rawfare. To travel from India to China, we'll board the seal-hunting ship The Bachelor's Delight, captained by Amasa Delano of Duxbury, Massachusetts. En route, we'll encounter a distressed ship in calmed waters, the Spanish slaver, the San Dominic, captained by Benito Serino. Which is to say, today we revisit the great novella of Herman Melville, Benito Serino serialized in 1855 in Putnam's magazine. Written with the U.S. Civil War on the horizon, Melville cast a backwards stare into the bright light of the Haitian Revolution, turning the Trial Rebellion of 1805, a shipboard slave uprising in the South Pacific off the coast of Chile, into a staged drama exposing the so-called master race as ignorant and deluded by an optimism born of unrestrained violence. The Haitian Revolution extended from 1791 to 1804, when Haiti won its independence from France. Melville sets his shipboard revolution in 1799, clearly intending his U.S. readers to be reminded of that world historical event. For today's show, two previous conversations about the novella have been combined. One, from 2013, with Jonathan Elmer, scholar and author of Lingering and Being Last, Race and Sovereignty in the New World and one from 2015 with two scholars, Maisha Wester, author of African American Gothic, Screams from Shadowed Places, and Christopher Freeberg, author of Melville and the Idea of Blackness, Race and Imperialism in Nineteenth-Century America. And at one point, we'll hear a bit of an audio production of the story by WFHB's Books Unbound program. We'll work backwards in time and begin with Maisha Wester and Christopher Freeberg in an episode we called Shadows Are Black, Slavery's Long Setting. And now, Babo in the Sunshine on Interchange on WFHB. Well, the novella is clearly about slavery, and it also seems a deep meditation on the limits of the mind, sort of the inability to read the scenery properly or to understand what's going on. Uh, There's an ignorance of the way others are minded, the the fact that the captain, uh, the American captain, uh, who discovers the stranded Spanish ship can't seem to understand what's going on. Um, there's, uh, there's a way that this story is about America in the same way it's about Spain in the same way it's about imperialism in the same way it's about cultural blindness and an interpretive misconstrual. Uh, the stage setting is borrowed from Spain. The actor is nearly all African and the play we're watching turns out to be something like the ignorant American, um, with Babo as director. So let's try to, um, sketch in a little bit of the stories. uh, Main, main parts, I guess. Uh, so, Maisha, why don't you start us out? Uh, can you give us a, a, a little bit of a, a preview about what this, who, who the main actors are in the
1: story? Uh, well, I think you've actually outlined them quite nicely. So, we have Babo, who seems to be a rather diminutive, servile, attentive slave uh, who dotes on his master, Sereno. Sereno is, um, Delano dismisses him as a slacker of a captain. He doesn't really seem to have any power whatsoever. Uh, he seems to be very fragile, um, and out of his wits and out of control of, uh, his slave force, um, who seem to behave just out of a natural docility is pretty much how Delano sets it up. We have Delano, who's the American captain, who is overly guided and whose ideas are overly determined by stereotypes. And I think that's one of the important things about this is, uh, Delano isn't just blinded to the slave revolts because of his stereotyping of slaves, but he's also blinded because of his stereotypes about Spaniards. Um, we also have Atufal, who is the quiet, looming image of the savage slave who's in chains and brought up from uh, the stockhold of the ship itself. Um, we find out that he is a co-conspirator, but not actually the head of the revolt. That's Babo, who's tiny. Right, ever-present, manipulative, seemingly happy-go-lucky, loving babo Those are our primary characters,
0: and including the ship, I suppose the ship kind of acts as a character. Uh, the 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 sort of stage setting that we're given with the uh, Ashanti conjurers or Ashanti a- hatchet polishers. It's it's something that you have to experience as you read, but. Uh, it's it's really nearly the end of the novel before you understand what's going on or before it's very clear what's happening. But the whole time it's somewhat clear. And the whole time there's something going on. The whole time Captain Delano has this idea that something is not quite right, and he attributes it in many ways to his own fear of piracy. Um, uh, the captain could be a pirate, uh, his own uh, fear of even the atmosphere. It just doesn't feel right there, but he can't figure out a way to 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 understand what's actually going on. Uh, Christopher, can you help us with uh, the attempt to try to understand how it is that Captain Delano is so blind when he comes aboard the ship?
2: Part of what Melville's getting us to do is to buy into Delano's blindness. I mean, in other words, it has to be somewhat convincing. And so, in other words, you don't necessarily pick up That he is as foolish, and so that usually implicates what I think I always find striking. A lot of Melville's work is that he's that even though he has characters that ultimately you can laugh at at some point, or and appear foolish, that you are also implicated as partially foolish because you get fooled. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I think that's a key part of the blindness. So that we all have we all have some element of that of that blindness in this and it's not necessarily that at the end of being into Sereno that you get some type of cure like oh if there weren't racism or there weren't stereotypes then no I would ever be blind again actually that's a question that seems to be the question that goes unanswered as often uh does involve text. texts
1: um. Just sort of thinking about Delano's blindness, it occurs to me that Melville presents these prolonged descriptions of the scenery around him, only to have Delano look, say, well, that's peculiar and keep moving along. Um, and so I think Delano is really meant to, on the one hand, help mislead us, but at the same time, as Christopher said, really reflect our our general blindness and willingness to overlook the details because it's irritating.
0: So let's let's start with Babo here. Uh, Babo has been called the most heroic character in all of Melville's fiction. That was by C.L.R. James. Uh, but also one uh, once academics discovered Melville in the nineteen twenties, Babo was also called a monster of motiveless malignity, and he's also all, uh, described as simply an evil character. Stanley Williams, a Yale University professor, wrote in nineteen forty seven that Babo, after all, as perhaps his name suggests, is just an animal, a mutinous baboon, aside from everything else wrong with that, there is the assumption of subjection in the word mutinous, which means rebellion against proper authority. But it's also come to light via a Nigerian scholar in 1974, and this seems to me more in line with something Melville might intend, but uh, Babo in the Hausa language means no, a strong expression of disagreement. Uh, these tidbits I called from Greg Grandin's recent book, Empire of Necessity. Christopher Freeberg, where, where does Babo fit in, in Melville's characterizations for you? Babo, a, a heroic character?
2: Is heroic because in some ways it's uh, the San Dominic is named after the 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 Haitian Revolution, and so he is um, heroic in that sense that he's fighting for freedom and wants to go back wants to go back home, Uh, but at the same time Babel is also you know he is a little torturous and manipulative that doesn't make him evil but at the same time I think that it's I guess I'm trying to say it's not a um, a clear or over celebratory heroic figure that does that that is not is that incapable of wrong. So he does have heroic attributes um, and bravery and courage, and he also is very extremely uh, smart. He is a mastermind, uh, but at the same time, uh, he is vindictive, but, but rightly so. He's probably been tortured himself. It's convoluted there, I think, in a, in a refreshing way, uh, that Melville, I guess, is a proto-realist in that sense. The fact that this text is about, uh, about trust and knowing and the unreliability of it, taps into the idea about Babel's character.
0: You're listening to Interchange on WFHB, our show is Babo in the Sunshine, and centers on the 1805 Tryall Rebellion, a shipboard slave uprising, as staged by Herman Melville in his 1855 novella, Benito Sereno. We're discussing how the specter of the Haitian Revolution haunts Melville's story. Our guests in this segment are literary scholars Maisha Wester and Christopher Freeberg. And at some point, Melville in the story says, "A captain is king, right? This is the captain's ship. Anything that happens on the ship that the captain says is law." And as we read and we find out what's going on, you get the sense that that the slaves are in fact revolting against the proper order. Uh, is the it a revolt in you know, a moral revolt, a legal revolt? Uh, you know, where where do we as readers who think in terms of legalisms and property sort of find ourselves situated in the story?
1: Well, and I think it's interesting that she start with that, that observation of Melville's frequent iteration of the captain as king, um, because this is a story that comes to us not just in the midst of slavery, but not long after we formed as a nation itself, right? And so when you talk about the question of revolt, um, and revolting against a king who may be rightfully and legitimately in power, that doesn't mean we shouldn't revolt, because clearly we just did. <laughs> Um, in doing so, formed ourselves um, into a new democracy. Uh, and so I think if we think about Babo in that sense, right, we're not just, it's not as black and white as is revolt legitimate. Is he revolting against rightful authority and therefore a criminal, therefore savage for this revolt? Um we're not just thinking about this in terms of slave revolts in general. We're also thinking about this implicitly referencing the question of American revolt as well, right? Um, what also interests me is I find it very amusing that the first person you noted that Babo defined Babo as heroic was C.L.R. James. Um, James was also one of the first historians in the 20th century to insist we take the Haitian revolution seriously, right? So it's no coincidence that this should also be one of the, I think, fairly few, um, critics who want to really read Babo as heroic, because in doing so, he's also trying to get us to think about the radical revolutionary slave, um, outside of tropes of monstrosity and savagery, and in terms of tropes of the heroic rebel. Let's go ahead and jump into the Haitian Revolution. We, we have a ship
0: here, uh, named the San Dominic. That's the Spanish ship. Um, the American captain's ship, uh, is named the Bachelor's Delight, which is also an interesting name. And, uh, obviously Melville takes, t- takes care with the naming of his ships. In the actual, um, the actual narrative that Amasa Delano, uh, writes, his voyages, uh, the ship is the trial, I believe. So he's, uh, Melville has changed the name to make this explicit reference to the Haitian Revolution. Is, is that correct, uh, uh, Christopher Freeberg?
2: Yes. I think it goes back to a lot of to a lot of things that we've been saying about the historical and sociological and philosophical power of of revolt that C.L.R. James can see uh Babo as central to the idea of of hero- heroism and nobility in terms of black revolt but also in terms of novel's text that there's a complete Utter defiance of all order in Babylon. In other words, it happens epistemologically, sociologically. So, so knowledge and social interaction, uh, personal interaction aboard the ship are all unreliable. Having a slave revolt, one that has happened in history and one that has currently happened on Uh, on the boat, you know, is compelling.
0: The slave revolt happens, and it's put down, and at some point we get a legal document near the end that gives us the captain's Version, And we get a legal perspective, which is, uh, again, authority, then Babo speaks no more, in a sense.
1: It was primarily through the legislative authorities and documents um, of the nation that we were supposed to know and understand the slave body. Uh, These were the documents which coded what could and could not be done to the black body. Uh, how they were allowed to function both as enslaved laborers and as uh, free bodies um, in relation to whites, um, and that in these various codes, we have an implicit definition of what the Black body is and what it's capable of. Um, and so what we really see in that really long deposition at the end is a determination to refix Babel and Atufal, right? Because it's not just uh, a recounting of the revolt itself is also an account of Babel's life, only we don't get it from Babel, right? We have to get it secondhand. We have to get it through a legitimating authority that decides what in his narrative is worth recounting, right? Um, you might assume that that narrative is as haunted by stereotypes, discriminations, inaccuracies, um, because we don't get Babel speaking it to us. Um And I think that's what really haunts at the end. So on the one hand, we have this long document that's overly determined and overly anxious with refixing the slave and the black body within a very rigid position. And this isn't just in terms of an American legal system, but, but because this occurs essentially between nations, this is global. Um But then contrary to that, we have Sereno's final haunting articulation, that the Negro remains unfixable, unknowable, that even once we've tried to recode and recontain him within the legal system uh, and thus refix him as object, that he still escapes.
0: At the end, uh, you use the word fixed, uh, Maisha. At the end, Babo's head is fixed on a pike. Christopher is that uh is that where Melville's going with his, his sort of comment in in, in Babel being we're having his brain be the hive of subtlety the
2: material object of Babel's head the juridical object of the court proceeding and all these these layers of objects that are supposed to deliver us to truth in the end still become unreliable and i think what is profound about these things is how melville's repeatedly asking us to experience unreliability like this is the material affect of unreliability how do you feel when something that you want desperately want closure to will not give you closure
1: yeah and i think you talk about this a little bit in your book christopher if i recall correctly uh the notion that um the very presence of the destroyed slave rebel right that that overly abused, punished body um, is not just a sign of justice restored, but also causes to question uh, the abilities of the slave, right? Because the slaves were not, one, supposed to revolt. They were supposed to be docile and happy. They were supposed to be non-human objects. Pets don't revolt. Um, but two, they weren't supposed to be successful. Uh, and Babo was, pretty darn near successful in his revolt right um and so that head is as haunting as sereno's articulation of the negro right um because babo's head is both a sign of a supposed return to normalcy but also a sign that we should question what powers what abilities what authorities and what drives do the slaves really have
0: It's time for a break. This is Charles Mingus with Prayer for Passive Resistance. From the 1961 album Pre-Bird, more on Herman Melville's masterful exposure of the willful American belief that Africans were not fully human and incapable of cunning and deceit in his novella, Benito Sereno. Stay with us. Welcome back, I'm Doug Storm and this is Interchange. Our show is Babbo in the Sunshine, which finds Melville's novella Benito Sereno descriptive of American arrogance, ignorance, and prejudice, leading to undeserved confidence and optimism. In this segment, with guests Maisha Wester and Christopher Freeberg, we take a look at how the law is used as a parallel mechanism with the whip and chain to contain and fix the black body. When we look at the the story and its completeness, we have three parts, basically, then. We have the beginning, which is the atmosphere and the mystery that leads into the action of the revolt and the discovery that Babo is not the faithful body servant of the Spanish captain and the body servant that even uh, uh, Masa Delano wants to purchase from Captain Sereno, right? That leads into the deposition. So after the actual revolt, we get the deposition, which is a legal document, and then at the end we have what is a, a kind of chat. I think on the way to the tribunal with Sereno and and Captain Delano. So the two captains have a uh, an after event conversation, and in that sense we begin to unravel and untangle the perspectives of these two captains, right? And as we said already, Babo is spoken for, in some sense. But the two captains, do they learn anything from, from what has happened? Christopher?
2: Sereno doesn't learn much of, I mean, he's pretty worn out. I mean, we get him in a pretty, in a dilapidated state that really doesn't get better. Uh, and that is part of the reason why Del, Delano is baffled at the end, because he's like, well, why aren't you feeling better? And this is, uh, this is why, that, why, as Maisha mentioned, that this failed, the return to normalcy uh, never actually occurs. That the that negro is still haunting, but you don't really get some type of you know, more elaborate sense of revelation from him post-revolt about new things in the world, the way of the world, about blacks, uh, you know, about global trade or whatever. It's still proliferating questions.
0: Let me give a little bit of the last speech uh, that was exchanged between the two of them, and ask Maisha to to comment. This is uh, starting out with Captain Delano, who gives what I, again, uh, assume and uh, imagine is Melville's assertion of the American mentality. But the past is past. Why moralize upon it? Forget it. See, yon bright sun has forgotten it all, and the blue sea and the blue sky. These have turned over new leaves. Because they have no memory, he dejectedly replied, because they are not human. "'But these mild trades that now fan your cheek, "'do they not come with a human-like healing to you? "'Warm friends, steadfast friends, are the trades.' "'With their steadfastness, they but waft me to my tomb, senor,' "'was the foreboding response. "'You are saved,' cried Captain Delano, "'more and more astonished and pained. "'You are saved. "'What has cast such a shadow upon you?' "'The negro.' "'There was silence while the moody man sat, "'slowly and unconsciously gathering his mantle about him "'as if it were a pall.' There was no more conversation that day. Maisha?
1: There's two things happening here. At the end, I don't know if I want to say that Sereno has learned something. Learned means, suggests that he's reached a conclusion. But I think what he's done is now been thrown into a state of questions, of questioning, a profound questioning about the overall order of things. Um, and so in that passage you just quoted, uh, he mentions the question of, the leaves and the wind not being human, right? And that question of humanity suggests that he's maybe alluding to the question of black humanity as well, right? Another figure or group of figures that he previously understood to be inhuman, to be mere objects, passive objects um, that couldn't do harm. That clearly could, right? Um, and so in one moment in which you have an object that becomes active, shows agency, so shows determination, shows profound intellect right and let's not forget uh, during the enlightenment period intellect reason were some of the major points that defined humanity and so that you have these points illustrated in the black body calls one into question right? right? Calls someone like sereno to question whether or not someone like Babel is actually human, despite all of their savagery, right? Because they do show signs of intellect. They outwit their captors and this American sailor, right? And so I think um that's, this is the reason Sereno has to die. He's His entire world has now just been thrown upside down. Delano, however, and I kind of have to chuckle at that, at his opening statement, why worry about the past? Because I think Melville is actually laughing at us as well. In 1855, um, we've had the Haitian Revolution, which you mentioned earlier, um, which came to a a conclusion, a final conclusion in 1804. We've also had the Nat Turner insurrection in 1831. Um, These were both moments in which one, Americans freaked out Now you have not just slaves revolting, but In Haiti, a successful slave revolt, um, and in Turner, a a revolt that promised, that could have been very successful. Um, In both cases, you had after the fact questions, debates in America about whether or not we should get rid of slavery, not based on black humanity, but based on the violence that the institution could do to whites. Um, In Virginia, there were tons of debates about, well, one, should we free the blacks and then ship them somewhere else, maybe Canada, maybe Haiti, maybe back to Africa? All right. Um, but should we continue with slavery here? Um, those debates didn't last long, so that by the time we get to eighteen fifty five, to have Captain Delano saying, Oh, but the past is done. Why worry about it? Mm. Um, Melville seems to almost be laughing at us. At the same time, at by this point, we've had numerous slave narratives come out which have spoken of slaves who are willing to literally fight for their lives and their freedom, right? You have Frederick Douglass who's published by now his fight with his epic fight with Covey, right? Which he defines as the point of making himself from a slave into a man. Um, you have the narrative of William and Ellen's craft, in which they've talked about the way they tricked their slave masters and managed to escape for their lives. And so you have all these narratives that allude to slave determination and willpower and intellect and ability to deceive. Hmm. And yet the country still seems to be, at least the South, seems to be rather happy to continue with the current institution as if the past, as if none of this mattered.
0: listening to Interchange on WFHB. Our show is Babo in the Sunshine about Herman Melville's 1855 novella, Benito Sereno. Our guests are literary scholars Maisha Wester and Christopher Freeberg, and we're discussing the ways Melville uses the character of Babo to demonstrate to his readers the full humanity of enslaved Africans, a character fully in charge of this situation. <laughs> Pointed out, to Maisha, that at this point in 1855, we've had Nat Turner, and we've had Frederick Douglass. We've had a lot of things that I'm sure Melville had read. Is is Melville really sort of commenting all this sort of on all this kind of um, what seems to be progress?
2: Well, I'd probably say that there the the language about the the past I think is uh, is, is definitely multi layered. I mean, we have to also consider that that Emerson. Emerson's Divinity Address and his essays were quite popular. The transcendentalists, who all of which Melville embraced and also made fun of, had an insistence on the new American world. And how we have to shake off the dead historical Christianity and old ways of knowing and being and embrace the new world, which would be, you know, which is partly you know, transcendentalism, new romanticism, Walt Whitman and free flowing form and all these formal and, and also political, um, new ways of thinking. But Melville has always challenged those broader intellectual trends and, the, and people's overconfidence in them when something that has traumatized Paneo uh, Serrano physically and mentally thwarted him <laughs> he's asking "Why? you know it's over now just forget it I think that also has to do with the with, I'd probably say, moving forward about 30 or 40 years with questions of race and Reconstruction, and this whole notion of racial trauma about blacks and whites being able to move forward post-Civil War. Um, and, you know, many blacks are anxious to move forward, and many powerful whites, especially in the South, are anxious to take their power back, and the clan is, clan is formed, and you do have this kind of ongoing contest about the role of the past, you know, in creeping up in the present, but I think Melville's and the story is basically saying in some ways that you can assert moving past, past all you want, but there's, but there's real blood and there's real trauma and this real history that disables or, or really makes that difficult if you're unwilling to, as of does, to truly confront it.
0: But one question too that, that, that sprung to mind there uh, as you were talking is, is how, you know, Melville had, uh, sort of made the the American captain a, a, a repositor in the sense of all that you could think of as the bad things about the sort of mindless idea of these stereotypes and and how uh, it's possible that we we don't seem to have moved on from these in many ways at all. Atafal is another particular example here. He's the giant, looming, monumental, scary black person in the story that has to be chained. The danger of the slaves is encompassed in that giant, Slave being chained, but the reality is the hive of subtlety is right next to S- Sereno and in charge of that really unchained slave. So all these things in the novel, I don't know that that we've escaped any of them. We still today, uh, not too long ago, we had well, we had Eric Garner and Michael Brown, who were characterized in official transcripts calling both these men giant, scary uh, creatures almost. This is the same language from Melville's time to ours. Maisha,
1: well, I definitely see uh, a preponderance of characterizations of the Black body in modern American culture. um, That's them as far back. Well. Beyond Melville, um, as monstrous, right? It's one of our most readily available tropes. Um, I think what we see in Melville and what we also see reflected both in, um, the political reaction to Garner and Brown versus the, the protests, um, is a determination to say, well, once we've fixed the law, once we've located the problem in the legal system and the legal codes, tweaked it, we can now move on, right? And so I think this is the other reason why we have that long um, bit of legal jargon at the end It's because it's once we fix that, we can then now happily move on without looking at the ways in which political culture, popular culture continues to code blacks either as monstrous um, or as docile and thus invisible, um, once we recognize what is problematic in a very basic way in this sort of legal system, we don't have to worry more about the larger institutional ideological um, codes underpinning that system itself.
0: Christopher, uh, last word uh, for you uh, here in the same vein. Do you get a sense that in this particular story that, that that Melville is trying to point in that direction as well, that the captains, that the slave trade, that seeing the the African as chattel, as non-human even, extends to today in the way we legalize or encode the way we treat minorities in, in particular in author- uh, by authorities?
2: I think yes. In the sense that what Maisha is saying what you were also uh, leading up to, I think it's just so profoundly interesting in this the staying power of this story. In the sense that in the inside these courtroom and court cases, I think this goes back to the Zimmerman, the Zimmerman Trayvon Martin trial. The idea that the that the legal team and or the police officer are crafting the precise narrative, like as in Melville crafts the precise narrative in which. They can pull their audience's emotions like puppets, like when you're mentioning the language of monstrosity and the, these questions about legal force, but what do we have to believe about somebody? What are our preconceptions to believe that that, that person is capable of delivering deadly force and also the other person is capable of um, of having to defend themselves? What I'm just alluding to is the idea of the staging of what makes killing a black person okay when they don't have a weapon, and what makes that believable and what makes that understandable to a public or to a ju- or to a grand jury. In that sense, that is the Delano audience. But the brilliant, the compelling, and progressive thing about what Melville is doing, in writing this in the middle of the 19th century, is that the African is the person who's actually doing Melville's staging.
0: It's time for another break, and another from Charles Mingus, off of Pre-Bird. This is Eclipse. When we return, we'll hear from Jonathan Elmer about the ways Melville's novella is a masterclass in thinking and seeing through preconceptions. Stay with us. Welcome back, this is Interchange on WFHB, our show is Babbo in the Sunshine. We'll turn now to my discussion with Jonathan Elmer from 2013 and the way that Melville's Benito Sereno, a story that was once not much regarded, has come to be seen as the masterpiece of literature, as well as a challenge to the stereotypical presentation of master and slave in the 19th century, written as the drums were beating for civil war in the U.S. I am a somewhat devoted reader of Melville. I was attracted to a paper you wrote called Babo's Razor, which uses Melville's novella Benito Serino to think about how our preconceptions, our socially learned frameworks, not only limit our capacity to think, but just as nearly blind us to what is right in front of our eyes. All right, well, let's go ahead and, and try to um, figure out why we would use Benito Serino as literature.
3: Benito Serino was not really uh, considered one of Melville's major texts until about um 25 years ago 20 years ago mm, okay um and it really sort of has spiked in this past uh, generation um i think it has a lot to do with the feeling that many readers now wonder how we can understand historical antagonism mm. uh, how we can be blind to um who we are exploiting who are our friends who are our enemies are the people who appear to be friends really friends, or are they are uh, antagonists? Um, the confusion that, especially American, um, the American population feels about some of those questions in terms of contemporary geopolitics, I think has is part of the background for why this novel has risen uh, in in stature. Um, the novel itself is. Uh, it describes that phenomenon, the the um, the whaling captain or the captain of the ship, the American captain of the ship, Amasa Delano, gets uh, aboard a, a ship that's apparently in distress, and it looks like the uh, captain of this slave ship um, has lost many of his crew to sickness and there has lost discipline over the slaves who are on board, who are being transported. Um, the we. Fairly quickly learn as readers that the focal consciousness, the American captain, is blind Mm. to things that are going on or just kind of stupid. He's very cheerful. He believes every time he has a portent of something terrible happening or maybe something's not right here, he quickly explains it away again in a way that makes human nature seem benign. Mm. And he prides himself on having that attitude. He thinks of it as peculiarly American, Mm -hmm. that we believe in the good of people. Uh, and we do not think ill. It turns out that he is on a ship that's been entirely um, uh, controlled by the apparently the most abject of the slaves, the personal servant of the captain, uh, a slave, a short, very short slave. He's described wonderfully in the text uh, uh, named Babo. And Babo it looks like he's the most abject of all the slaves, but in fact is the mastermind of everything, all the while pretending still to be an obsequious mm-hmm. personal servant to the Spanish captain, Benito Serena.
0: You mentioned a couple of things that were really interesting there in terms of not only, I suppose, fictional technique, which is point of view, and you, you use the word focal, the American captain right. uh, comes in and can only see certain things. Right. He, he comes onto a ship from his own ship. A ship is in distress. Um, he There are no colors. The, the ship is waving no flags. He doesn't know what it is. Uh, he expects it to be a certain thing when he gets on it. And as you say... The crew has been decimated. There are only slaves, almost, on the ship. Uh, The captain is weak and sickly, but um, and and our our captain Delano, American captain, is is sort of constantly criticizing his his ability as a captain. You know, there's no discipline here. You know, what are you doing? Um, And almost always in his own head. That's right. Just trying to understand it again, only through his own. Perspective, All not right. what else could be going on, but he does make some speculations. Can you explain some. Well, of he makes he makes a number of speculations,
3: and um, you know he the the worry is that this uh, Spanish captain is both too brutal um a which is a stereotypical view of the uh Spaniards in particular mm-hmm. on the part of the Americans that, that that um Spanish slave holding was and Spanish imperialism uh was uh, more brutal and more inhumane mm-hmm. than the American type um but he also thinks that he's um just weak and weak-willed and sickly and all the rest of it Babo knows how to manipulate the american captain mm-hmm. and Babo figures out the way to um dupe this captain, so that he does not realize that there has been a successful rebellion on board this ship. That's what Bobo needs to mm-hmm. do. He needs to convince this captain that there's nothing wrong here. Mm-hmm. Go on your way. Is to stage a whole series of very dramatic events mm-hmm. um, to uh, to incite the American captain to apply his various kinds of ideological and automatic mm-hmm. thoughts. The most Perhaps the most striking one is um a, a slave named Atufal is brought up in chains to the to the Captain Benito Sereno and is um is apparently uh being asked will you beg pardon will you please beg pardon and Atufal uh a very noble large slave um refuses just sits stands mutely before the captain and then is sent back um uh, below decks again This what we're supposed to believe here is that Atufal was a, a sovereign figure in his homeland, a king or a prince of some kind uh that he is absolutely rejecting uh, slavery in every possible way, including asking for uh, to be to be reprieved from the punishment. This allows uh the American captain Amasa Delano to say he's both a noble figure and uh and an abject one because he's of course enslaved. Mm-hmm. This allows Delano to Affirm his own recognition of humanity across the slave master divide. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. He says, oh, this guy's a great guy. He's a powerful figure. It's kind of bad historical luck that he's a slave, but he is a really a noble, the the, the so called noble savage."
0: Yeah. So you have Melville playing into um, what he, what we assume is a, an American stereotype of the noble savage, and and his um, primary again focal point of view is Delano's, right. who who is a stand in perhaps, for Melville's reader. That's always
3: been um, part of the the interpretation of the story through history, is what was Melville trying to do with his reader? Mm -hmm. There are, and this is where putting Serino in connection to things like Bartleby Mm -hmm. uh, and even Billy Budd is important, because all of these texts present uh, either first-person narrators or focal narrators who are really deeply flawed or are making decisions that the reader is going to find really uncomfortable. Uh, And we are placed by Melville, inside their heads, in any case, in such proximity to them that we can never fully uh, separate ourselves from their worldview. In that sense, we're sort of implicated.
0: It's time for a final break and a final song from the album Pretty Bird by Charles Mingus. This is Weird Nightmare. Stay with us for more Babo in the Sunshine when Interchange returns on WFHB. Welcome back, I'm Doug Storm and you're listening to Interchange on WFHB. In our final segment of Babo in the Sunshine, literary scholar Jonathan Elmer details the way Melville stages scenes in his novella. And we'll talk about one of the most ominous of those scenes, which finds Babo, the body servant for the Spanish Captain Benito Serino, shaving his master. We'll also hear the opening paragraphs from the novella from a WFHB Books Unbound production. Delano is an American. Yeah, Delano is uh, oh, it's a whaling ship, mm-hmm. um, and he's confronting a slave ship. Right, and so we confront in 1850. Melville's story it, it writes it in 1855. It's a story from 1799, I right. believe. It set said set in, in
3: 1799.
0: Yeah, yeah, and so as an American, this is 60 years down, you know forward. We're nearly into the Civil War. Right. This is a this is really a hot thing. Yes. This, you know this is a dangerous thing. Right, this is a bold thing for Melville to have written and published. That's right. I haven't seen anything really in terms of feedback on it at the time. You know, what What was the response to the story? The response that we've been able to track does not indicate that people were outraged or
3: mm. scandalized. Okay. I mean, this is the mid-1850s. Mm-hmm. They got bigger fish to fry, oh. the American public, uh, than Melville's. <laughs> they got the got Fugitive right. Slave Act. They're right, going to have right. John Brown eventually. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, there is stuff going on that is much more out of control. Mm-hmm in some ways, it's a little bit of a puzzle that Mm -hmm. has been allowed future generations to unpack. Um, It is fairly clear to us now, or it seems clear to us now, that what Melville wanted to do by by publishing in 1855, six years before the beginning of the Civil War, a story that's set in the era of revolutions, Mm -hmm. the revolutions that are the American Revolution first, the French Revolution second, but really importantly for that story, the Haitian Revolution, Mm -hmm. the only successful revolution on the part of slaves mm. in the New World. The Haitian Revolution was a huge deal in the American pu- uh, public imagination for the time of sev- from 1790s to the time was write- Melville was writing. Mm. A, a, a cautionary tale, a tale of horror, uh, a catastrophe. The US government did not recognize the Republic of Haiti um, until well after the Civil War. Um, th- this was a, a place of denial. Uh, the idea of a successful slave rebellion was the stuff of nightmares. And it was the stuff of nightmares not just for the people in the south where, where it was very volatile, but also for many, many northerners. So by calling the ship that Benito Serino, uh is is the captain of the San Dominic, it invokes Santo Domingo, which is in fact Haiti. And the idea of a successful slave rebellion in San Dominic is the sort of embedded story. And of course, the contradiction between the ideals of the American Revolution and, um, and freedom versus the slave state that America was in 1799, as it was in 1855, is the is the source of the conflict of the story.
0: You used a, a good word earlier, staging. Mm-hmm. In in some respects, the the novel does or novella does seem to move as set pieces somewhat, mm-hmm. or uh, the characters move on and off stage frequently. Right. So Benito Sereno is often led off by Babo to That's rest right. or That's take right. a break. and goes off stage, yeah. and then we're left with Delano saying, "What's going on here?" Benito Sereno by Herman Melville In the year 1799, Captain Amasa Delano of Duxbury in Massachusetts, commanding a large sealer and general trader, lay at anchor, with a valuable cargo, in the harbor of St. Maria, a small, desert, uninhabited island towards the southern extremity of the long coast of Chile. There he had touched for water. On the second day, not long after dawn, while lying in his berth, his mate came below— informing him that a strange sail was coming into the bay. Ships were then not so plenty in those waters as now. He rose, dressed, and went on deck. The morning was one peculiar to that coast. Everything was mute and calm, everything gray. The sea, though undulated into long roods of swells, seemed fixed, and was sleeked at the surface, like waved lead that has cooled and set in the smelter's mold. The sky seemed a gray surtout. Flights of troubled gray fowl, kith and kin with flights of troubled gray vapors, among which they were mixed, skimmed low and fitfully over the waters, as swallows over meadows before storms. Shadows present, foreshadowing deeper shadows to come. To Captain Delano's surprise, the stranger, viewed through the glass, showed no colors. Though to do so upon entering a haven, however uninhabited in its shores, where but a single other ship might be lying, was the custom among peaceful seamen of all nations. Considering the lawlessness and loneliness of the spot, and the sort of stories at that day associated with those seas, Captain Delano's surprise might have deepened into some uneasiness, had he not been a person of a singularly undistrustful good nature, not liable, except on extraordinary and repeated excitement, and hardly then, to indulge in personal alarms, any way involving the imputation of malign evil in man. The novella opens with gray, shadowy, you know, um, fog moving in. And so we are we're, we're forced to try to guess what's going on the whole time. It's very clearly directed at us that way mm-hmm. to say, this is going to move on. You're going to have to figure out what this is. Then this is going to move off. There are very ominous set pieces. Yes. Uh, and one in particular that you draw attention to, uh, in, in, in your book, in this paper as well, uh, is the, the shaving scene. Yes. Uh, yeah, you're absolutely right that in, with a lot of these fictions, especially
3: the late fictions, um, Melville seems to be un- unconsciously perhaps, but in any case, uh, thinking in terms of sort of uh, theater mm-hmm. uh, and thinking about, as you say, entrances and exits mm-hmm. uh, and tableau. Mm-hmm. Um, put somebody there, put somebody there, show them you know, with with the gun pointed at him and the other person with their hands up, mm-hmm. that kind of melodrama stuff. The scene with the shaving is uh, Babbo's um, triumph. Um, he invites Delano to participate during the toilet, as the mm-hmm. uh, archaic phrase would have it, um, of the captain. In other words, the, uh, his personal servant shaving him and, and, and preparing him. So an exchange goes forward between these three figures, Benito Serino, Captain Delano, and Babo. All of which time, Babo is keeping up a kind of an obsequious patter. Uh, as he shades, his "You know, yes, master. You know, oh, and I did once, uh, I did once, you know, cut you, and you hit me very hard. You know." And he acts all very, you know, sort of downtrodden all
0: this time. Another uh, thing Melo does throughout is is characterize the the, the Negro in this particular story. Absolutely, and way. and right. we're again, this is a
3: you know a point of interpretation. But since everything is being filtered through Delano's consciousness, we mm-hmm. sort of have to think that these are Delano's thoughts. Mm-hmm. But a lot of critics have said, well, you know, there are places where. It's not clear that they are Melville's thoughts. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, Delano is noticing all kinds of strange things. For instance, the fact that Babo wraps around uh, Benito Sereno as the as the barbering apron, mm-hmm. the Spanish flag, right. and. He says, that doesn't That's seem altogether concert, yeah. kosher, you know? <laughs> right, and right. then he says, and this is a classic thing that happens, he says, ah, well, you know, to Babbo, as long as the colors are gay, right?
0: <laughs> That's right, I B- forgot. Well, yeah, because the, you the idea you the, yeah. black people, right, right, you right. love bright
3: colors, etc., <laughs> right, etc. Cetera, et cetera. Right. Basically, this is a scene in which Benito Sereno is being forced to say the script he's been given by Babbo with a razor at his neck. Delano is... Sees, he sees the truth of the matter. He says, I couldn't help but feel as though it was somebody being executed uh, with his head at the block and the executor was with, with the big uh, blade above it. The interpretive question, if you like, is how can Delano not see mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that this is Benito Sereno having his life threatened? And at some level, the answer is a very simple one. Slave owners were shaved by their slaves all the time. The slaves had razors at the necks of the slave owners all the time. So if we're not understanding this scene for the violence that it contains in it, that could burst out at any moment in the story that we're told, why does that confusion not transfer to so-called normalcy when there hasn't been a rebellion, but your personal slave in South Carolina or whatever is shaving you for the day? Uh, The volcano is... Are ready to erupt in both
0: instances. Yeah, that's a clear. I mean, that's a clear sense you get as you read it. Is that that just any moment yeah. things are going to fall apart mm-hmm. in a really ugly way? And they and they yeah. do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You get there. It's a slow burn. Yes, I mean, it, it very slow It's burn. a slow burn. And it's a long book. The thing that I think we might address is this: uh, a description of evil. Mm-hmm. Is Babo evil? Right. As a reader, I sit here and I see he's a captured slave. I mean, this is a man doing something he has to do to get home. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
3: Well, I think you know. I think it's Melville was really interested in the problem of depravity. You know, basically the idea that um, human beings were. Uh, innately depraved mm. that they were that the <laughs> original sin. Mm-hmm,
4: mm-hmm. Uh,
3: this was something that he had grown up with. It was part of his religious upbringing, mm-hmm. um, and it's something that he sort of elevated to a, a, a more philosophical, rather than merely theological, mm-hmm. um, level. So he was really interested in this problem. Mm-hmm. I would say it seems fairly clear, in my own opinion, that this story presents the depravity, um, and that there is depravity, there is evil and violence as distributed. In other words, the depravity is in the system. If you do, if you treat somebody like Babo, uh, in the way that Babo has been treated, you know, bad results are going to happen. Mm-hmm. You might want to call those results evil, but the evil was uh, built into the treatment in the beginning. So, when we're talking about depravity and evil, I think we have to understand it as an historical dimension, a dimension of memory that is not part of the natural world. Uh, so whenever there's people going along trying to naturalize certain things, that person is naturally evil, or that person is naturally good. Or that race. Or that race right. is naturally right. superior, right. or right. that one is naturally inferior. That is a way of avoiding, it seems to me, the lesson.
0: That's our show. Here's a final composition by the great Charles Mingus. This is Things Ain't What They Used To Be, off of Mingus Dynasty, which was released in 1960. Massa ship in Melville's story bears the fictive name of Bachelor's Delight to illustrate the arrogance and optimism found in abundance in the imperial projects of the U.S. and Britain, fueled by capitalist resource extraction and the extreme violence needed to coerce labor. Next week, we'll talk with Mark Driscoll about his book, The Whites Are Enemies of Heaven, Climate Caucasianism, and Asian Ecological Protection, which details, among other things, british narco trafficking in the 19th century i'm doug storm i produce interchange kate young is executive producer this is bloomington indiana's community radio station wfhb thanks for listening